Is this thing on? All right. Hey, you guys. For so many years, I've wanted to do this. And I was raised in this church as a kid, so that's quite a long time. But I've always wanted to do a t-shirt toss <laughs> in Sunday morning church. And this is about to happen, so prepare yourselves. <laughs> so this is a large WGTS 91.9 from Linden for free, large. So, you know, we already have one taker up here. Hands up. Joel's wanting it. Anyone? Hands up. Oh, in the back, in the back. I'm just going to throw it, and then whoever catches it. I see a lot of hands. All right, you ready? I don't know if I'm a good thrower. I played baseball when I was young, but... Oh, where's the pitch? Oh! <laughs> That's awesome. All right, so we're going to be reading the scripture and doing a prayer this morning. Jesus told him yet another story. Once a man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Give me my share of the property. So the father divided his property between his two sons. Not long after that, the younger son packed up everything he owned and left for a foreign country where he wasted all his money in wild living. He had spent everything when a bad famine spread through that whole land. Soon he had nothing to eat. He went to work for a man in that country, and the man sent him out to take care of his pigs. He would have been glad to eat what the pigs were eating, but no one gave him a thing. Finally, he came to his senses and said, My father's workers have plenty to eat, and here I am, starving to death. I will go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against God in heaven and against you. I am no longer good enough to be called your son. Treat me like one of your workers. The younger son got up and started back to his father. But when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt sorry for him. He ran to his son and hugged and kissed him. The son said, Father, I have sinned against God in heaven and against you. I am no longer good enough to be called your son. But his father said to his servants, Hurry and bring your best clothes and put them on him. Give him a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Get the best calf and prepare it so we can eat and celebrate. This son of mine was dead, but has now come back to life. He was lost and has now been found. And they began to celebrate. The older son had been out in the field, but when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants over and asked, What's going on here? The servant answered, Your brother has come home safe and sound, and your father, he ordered us to kill the best calf. The older brother got so angry that he would not even go into the house. His father came out and begged him to go in. But he said to his father, For years I have worked for you like a slave and have always obeyed you. But you have never even given me a little goat so that I could have a dinner for my friends. This other son of yours wasted your money on prostitutes, and now that he has come home, you ordered the best calf to be killed for a feast. His father replied, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we should be glad and celebrate. Your father was dead, or sorry, excuse me, your brother was dead, but he is now alive. He was lost and has now been found. 
Amen. We're going to be reading from the book of Ephesians, the third chapter, starting at verse 14. Prayer for spiritual strength. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in earth and and in heaven is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Thank you, Jonathan and Jess, and good morning to you. Good morning. There we go. I can't help but um, take just a a little detour uh, after a beautiful reading of the scripture and a beautiful prayer for the scripture to have its purpose fulfilled in our lives, to know the love of God. Uh, Today, I can't help but think about those that are suffering for all these shootings going on in schools. And I just want us just to intercede before God for what is taking place in these, you know, places of, um, what should be places of refuge. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we know that we have sown the wind and, and reaped the whirlwind, that we have given ourselves to the breakdown of the family, we've given ourselves to a loveless culture, a um, disconnect from knowing that we are created in the image of God, that we have such value as humans, and, and we have removed ourselves from the understanding of grace, but also the understanding of truth, that there are consequences, that there's not only right, but there's wrong, and And I just pray that you would forgive us in this country, Father. I just ask, Lord, that as we have, even by law, removed you from our schools in prayer and in in, in acknowledging you, that we would recognize how far that we've come and we would be like this prodigal son who came to his senses, that we would come to our senses in this country. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for our fatherlessness. I pray that you would forgive us for our lack of guidance for our young people, lack of, 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 of not only a mixture of, of or not a, a beautiful balance of grace and truth in and, and the, and the instruction that we're giving. And, and so, Father, I just pray for all that we have and all that we've been blessed with, that we would come to you, God, and repent, that we would come to you and ask you to forgive us, Lord, and that you would, you, we would ask you, Lord, to heal our land, God. Father, I pray that you would humble us, that we would humble ourselves, that we would seek your face, that we would turn from our wicked ways, that, that God, we would, we would pray, Father, Lord, for this country, God. And, and we know the needs of the world all around us, Father, but Lord, as, as, a, as a, in many ways a lead country, Lord, this should not be happening here. We know this, Father. So blessed we are. 
So God, we ask, Lord, that you would protect our children, God, that you would um, help us, Lord, to not give in to this whole thing of being a police state and, and, and making it all about you know, fortifying and, and, and taking up arms and all of these things, Lord. In Jesus' name, we pray that you would get us to the place where we would know that we could, we could have you restore us, God, to the, to the right way of, of living life, God, of, of, of educating our children. God, forgive us, Lord, for all of the distractions we've allowed ourselves with the crazy music and the crazy video games and all the kind of stuff that we're filling our minds with and desensitizing ourselves with. Lord, in Jesus' name, God, we pray that you would bring us back, Lord, that there would be a returning to you and that you would, again, turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, that you would restore homes, God, that you would restore households of of families, households of faith, God. Lord, in Jesus' name, God, we just pray that, that God, there will be an awakening, a spiritual awakening in this country. Lord, our children need to be protected, God. They need to be cared for, Lord. And, and so we look to you, God, for what only you can give. God, we thank you for the prayer movement that we've seen even over the last two years. It's, it's, it's risen as much as we've ever seen. I know in my lifetime, I've never seen it. Uh, rise up as much as I've seen it in the last couple of years. And so, Lord, I pray that you would raise it up even more, God, that there would be houses of prayer, churches would be houses of prayer for all nations. God, in Jesus' name, we just ask for your grace to be poured out in this land. And while we, while we intercede for all this, we give you thanks and praise, God, for all that you have done and all that you're going to do in response to our prayers, Lord. In Jesus' name. Can we say amen, church? Amen. Can you tell by now that I am overwhelmed by this story that Jesus told? I would love to elaborate, pontificate, to just, you know, sing the praises, be a cheerleader for this passage, but I just want it to speak for itself. We started last week and we're continuing part two this week, the unseen brother in the story. And if you were here last week, you know where we were with that. But we learned last week that Jesus is everything in this story. The teller of the story is Jesus. He's the one communicating the story. And then we find out that each of the three main characters of the story represent Jesus. Jesus is represented, we learned last week, by the younger brother. Because like the younger brother, and I want to encourage you, by the way, I, I, made, I failed to mention this. You have notes, okay? And what I did was I gave you a place to take down some notes for this week on the back. But on the front, and a little bit on the back, I've kind of just given a synopsis for where we were last week, and I'm just going to kind of run through that, and if you want to read along, you're welcome to, but Jesus is represented by the younger brother, because like the younger brother, Jesus left his father to go to a distant country with all that the father had given him of his father's wealth, in this case, not to spend it on himself, but to spend it on us. Jesus became a friend of sinners so that he could rescue sinners. Jesus rescued us by giving us all that his father had given him. 
Jesus experienced exile, emptiness, rejection, hatred, loneliness, and alienation for us so we could be rescued from all of that. Jesus became the prodigal son for us to make us true sons and daughters of the Father. And then finally we see how the correlation between this story that Jesus told and the life that Jesus lived was climaxed in Jesus returned to his Father and there was a glorious celebration. So we see the corollary by similarity and by contrast between the prodigal son and the Lord Jesus. And that's that verse that we read last week out of 2 Corinthians 5.21 really states it all. It says, for our sake, Jesus, or God, for our sake, God the Father, made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. And then we referred as well to Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11. And then we see how the story of the older brother points to Jesus as well. Because the religious leaders to whom Jesus told this story knew that a true older brother should be caring and responsible enough to use the vast resources given to him by his father to go and seek and find and bring home his lost brother. On a multitude of occasions, Jesus referred to himself as the good shepherd, such as in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, where he said, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus is our true older brother who comes to find us and restore us to the Father's house. In Hebrews 2.11, it says both the one who makes people holy, that's Jesus, and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. So we see Jesus represented by the younger brother becoming sin for us, leaving his father, taking the wealth, all of that, all of those things, bringing it down to rescue us, not to party himself, but to bring us to a party, amen? And, and he, he's represented by the younger brother, but he's also represented by the, the older brother, whereas the older brother did not fulfill his calling, did not uh, act out of his own identity as the true older brother. Jesus was suggesting to those religious leaders that, hey, I'm the true older brother. I've come to seek and save the lost, referring to himself um, as the Old Testament referred to God as the shepherd of the sheep, the one who when we have the shepherd, we need nothing because the shepherd has all that we need. And then finally, we saw that the true older brother who seeks and saves the lost is represented by the father. And we compare this to the words of Jesus in John 10, 30, where he says, I and the Father are one, fulfilling Isaiah 9, 6, and many other passages that said that the Son would be born would be the Father, the everlasting Father. So we see Jesus represented by the younger Son, the older Son, the Father himself in this, in this masterpiece of storytelling that has become a masterpiece of literature for us. We learn that in this story, Jesus is everything. You can insert amen at that point. But it's not just in this story. It's to communicate that in life, Jesus is everything. That's why he's called the Alpha and the Omega. 
He's the beginning and the end. He's the start of it all. He's the finish of it all. If you have Jesus, you have everything. That's why he called himself the good shepherd because we knew from the psalmist David when he said, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I shall not want. So Jesus is everything in this story. He's everything in life. So I want to ask this question. So what does this story tell us about how we are to relate to God? How we are to experience God, how we are to be approved by God so that we could be in relationship with God, not only for this life, but for the next life. How? How do we relate with God in a way that connects us with his love, with his favor, with his blessings, all of the things that God offers to us, how do we connect with God? And I want to put it in two different questions in the, in the form of two different questions that will kind of sum up all those questions. And I want to seek to answer um, these two questions that are in the back of your notes this morning. And, uh, and I want to answer them from scripture, of course. But the first one is, what does God require of God in relation to being approving us or, or come bringing us into relationship with himself or us coming into relationship with God? What does God see as his responsibility in this relational transaction? And, and then secondly, what does God see as the human responsibility? What is the requirement that God has for people to be in relationship with him? And, and kind of spoiler alert, I want, to give, I want to give the answer succinctly before I give the answer kind of with, with a lot of background to it, with a lot of more information from Scripture. I just want to give the answer in this. What God requires of himself, you can sum it up in this way, is to say yes to you. To say yes to wanting to be in relationship with you. If someone were to go to God right now and say, do you want to be in relationship with that man, with that woman? What God requires of himself by his very nature is to answer yes. And not only yes to wanting to be in relationship with you, but yes to making that relationship happen, to providing for you to be in relationship with God. And so uh, it, we're, we're going to say a lot more than that, but I want you to kind of hang your hat on that for now. This is the hook you're putting your coat on uh, as you're kind of coming into God's living room and you're sitting down with a father and he's saying, hey, kick your feet up. This is where you're saying, okay, I'm going to hang the, I'm going to hang it on this, that, that what God requires of himself is to say yes to us, to say, yes, I love you. I want to be in relationship with you. Yes, I'm going to make a way to, for you to be in relationship with me. And by the way, that's pretty much the theme of the whole Bible. It starts in the Garden of Eden. It ends in the book of Revelation. It's the same theme throughout the whole point. It's God wanting to be in relationship with the people that he's created and doing anything that he can possibly do to be in relationship with them. Why? Because of his nature, out of his love. So let's go ahead and give the cliff note version again, the, 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 the spoiler alert thing again. Um, what does God require of humans? as it pertains to being in relationship with God. And it's simply this, to say yes to God's yes. To say yes to God's yes. 
And by the way, in that order. Religion puts it in a separate order. Religion puts it in this order. Religion says if you say yes to God enough, maybe, just maybe, God will say yes to you. But that's not what we read in the teachings of Jesus. In this story, this one lonely story, the story alone it, it kind of is the summation of all of the big story of all of the Old Testament, all of the New Testament is kind of embodied in this one story. And in this one story, we see that before there was a yes from the younger son or the older son to the father, there was a yes from the father to the younger son and to the older son. And that's what gave the possibility for those, those sons to be transformed is God saying yes to them and then the opportunity that they had then to say yes to God's yes. Are you hearing God's yes this morning to you? And we could go on and say, are you, are you responding with a yes to God? It's going to frame where we are today. But I just want, I just want to, uh, to go back to that 2 Corinthians 5 passage because we, we gave that, me that message in verse 21 and it says that, that God made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in, in him, Jesus, we might become the yes of God, okay? The righteousness of God. The not no, you can't be in relationship with me, but yes, you can be in relationship with me. Because just before that passage of Scripture, God lets us know through the Holy Spirit that through Jesus, God is not counting our sins against us. He is not considering our sins as an impediment to being in relationship with Him. He's saying, look, I know that you're sinners, and that's a fact, but the reality is I'm going to make it possible so that that sin has no effect on our relationship. Is that awesome? What does God require of God? We're going to look at some different passages of Scripture, but I want you to see this passage just, just from the words of this story. First of all, we see that God requires of God to love us. It says that when the Son returned, that the Father had compassion upon Him. That's a word of love. That's a word of endearment. That's saying that as bad as this son is, this son is dear to me and I want to be in relationship with this son. We see the love demonstrated by the father allowing the son to reject being in relationship with him and taking what did not belong to him. Did the inheritance belong to him? Yes, but not yet. Only after his father died would the, would the inheritance rightfully be his. But he allowed him to, to, to break every rule, social, religious, whatever it was. He allowed the son to break all of that. You say, well, why would the father do that? Why would the father allow the child to be so rebellious? Why not whack the child back into his senses? I believe that that was a demonstration of love. Because sometimes as rebellious human beings, the only way that we can learn 
uh, uh, the, the right way and the wrong way is by doing the wrong thing. Unfortunately, the reality is it's oftentimes by our failures that we're led into ultimate success. And it's the same thing morally. When we come to a place where we pursue life without God and see what an empty road that is, we come to our senses like it says that the son did. He came to his senses. This kind of lifestyle, sinful, disobedient, rebellious lifestyle has a dead end. It does not work out in the end. It's fun for a while, but it gets really miserable. And I'm totally miserable here. And I believe it was out of love that the Father allowed him to learn that lesson. I believe it was out of love that the Father allowed him to be in a pig pen. And at the pig pen, remember that he still has a father. That he might, have, he might have now ruined his relationship with his father, but he still has a father. And he could come to his father and say, hey, the, the rules have changed. I get that, but you're still my dad. Would you accept me as a hired servant? And, and so I believe it was love reaching out to that son, letting him go as far as he went. And then in that place to remember that this life doesn't work out, but that life with God is way better. And, and so I believe it was love that allowed him to do that. It was compassion that allowed him to do that. But it was also love that made the father go out, leave the party to go out to that older son. The language of, of how the, the father treated that older son has impacted me now as much as it used to impact me about the younger son. It says he begged him. What a place of condescension for the father to be so uh, um, ridiculed by the son personally and publicly shamed, ridiculed by his son. And yet what does he do? He goes out and he pleads with him. He begs with him. He comes down to his, his level and says, look, I love you. Everything that I have is yours. And even though the son wouldn't call him father, he called him son. We see the unconditional love of God for the, for the rebellious son, but also for the religious, moralistic son. The one who thought he is, was totally wrecked by sin and the one who wouldn't admit that he had any sin even though that while he was doing that he was sinning <laughs> he was he was you know uh, making himself obvious that he had a sinful heart that he, he said I've obeyed you father but even as he said I obeyed you he was disobeying the father he refused to go into that party he refused to appreciate the heart of the father to look after the needs of his brother he was filled with religious callousness with moralistic superiority and and, and yet what did the father do the father just loved him so what does the father what does God require of himself to be a loving father because that's who God is to love, to have compassion, to have mercy, to forgive, to have grace. In fact, to replace anger with grace. You don't think this father had any anger? Oh, this father was without anger whatsoever. I, I know it must have upset the father. Uh, anger is not always rage. It's not always out of control. It, it, it could be a controlled force. And you know that this father was like so disappointed to the point of, uh, I'm sure of being upset. And, and, and call it whatever you want, whatever it was that was negative that the, the father felt toward his sons, he made a decision because of their sonship to replace it with grace. To say, you know what, there's anger for sure, but I'm going to let go of the anger. And then the father did something that was absolutely astounding. 
The Father paid out of His own resources for everything that the Son had lost and then paid for Him to have even more. There are some theologians that have, that have read this scripture and they say, look, there's no mention of the traditional Christian doctrine of atonement, of Jesus going to the cross and paying the ultimate price for our sins. There's the kind of religion here that the world desires, the kind where the world says, look, there's no price to pay for sin because sin is to be excused. Sin is to be tolerated. Sin is even be, to be called right instead of wrong. Or some type of psychological pathology. You know, somehow we have to explain sin away. And that's the world in which we live. And we live in that world. And we sometimes live by the code of that world. We sometimes think the same way. We sometimes act the same way. That sin is no big deal. But we know from Jesus telling this story that sin costs, it costs the son nearly his life. It cost him his health, his inheritance, his money, all of that. It cost him his friends, everything sin cost him. But look at what sin cost the father. Look at what sin cost the older brother. You know why the older brother was so ticked off when that son came back? We have a story like... Uh, Hey, he gave him a goat in a party. It wasn't about a goat in a party. That son, as the younger son, left with a third of the estate. The older son was to be given, as the older son, two-thirds of the estate. The, the, young, uh, the younger son, a third of the estate. But it wasn't just a third of the estate. It was a third of the interest that would have been derived from more years of the father's living and an expansion of the... They liquidated too early. They got rid of stock, apple stock, call it what you want, that they never should have got rid of because it just kept rising and rising. And So the older son knew that this son had squandered the wealth of the household. And he knew... That when Jesus restored that son, when he gave him a robe, it was the older brother's robe. It was the father's robe, but it was going to be the older brother's robe eventually. When he gave him the ring, it was the father's ring to give, but it was eventually going to be the older brother's ring to give. The costliness of the response of this father to his son cannot be measured. He allowed him to take the family farm, at least a large portion of it, and to squander it, to throw it away. He gave up his right to tell the son what to do as a father should have. He allowed the son to take away what was rightfully the father's. It was the father's right to say no, but he didn't, he didn't choose to say no. And the son not only left with the wealth of the father, he left with the reputation of the father what was, that was left in tatters because all of the community said, what kind of father is he that his son wants to treat him like this? He must have been a horrible father. And yet we know from the story that this father was anything but a hor horrible father because we learn that this is like no earthly father. This, uh, this could only be the heavenly father that is represented by this father in the story. It's an amazing thing that, that how much it cost the father and the older brother. And, and you might feel bad for the older brother, but remember it was the older brother's responsibility to look out for his younger brother, to try and talk him out of it 
to go and search for him, to have compassion on him himself, at least to welcome him back when he came back from the dead and, and was found after being lost. And, and, yet, and yet the household had so much that taxed tax their, their income, their, their reputation. All that they had was continually taken from them. And you know, what does the father do in response? What does the father require of himself after so much has been taken from him? To keep on giving, forgiving, having grace, replacing anger with all of these beautiful things. You know what? I remember singing this song in the Bronx, New York, uh, during offering time. And I think we should sing it here during offering time as people brought their offerings. And it was, you can't beat God giving no matter how hard you try. Because the more you give, the more he gives to you. And then the last part of the song says, so keep on giving because it's really true that you can't beat God giving no matter how hard you try. Well, that's an amazing song, but it's even more. The grace of God is so abundant. It's so, it, it's just so beyond anything that we could ever ask or imagine. This grace of God that it not only gives to us when we give, but it gives to us when we take. It gives to us. This is, you say, how good can this news be? It's too good to be true. But it's that good and it's still true. The reality is, is that the book of Romans chapter 5 says that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Jesus died for us. That means that while we were taking all the obedience that belonged to God, taking it away from God, while we were cursing God, shaming God, while we were ignoring God, treating God with contempt, telling God he doesn't matter whatsoever, all the gifts that you've given me, I'm not going to acknowledge you, I'm not going to thank you, I'm not going to give you glory and even at that point what is he doing he's loving he's giving he's going to the cross for us and, and that that leads me to the second part of this story that what does God require of himself to love but the kind of love that runs the kind of love that runs what God requires of himself is to run to us and that, that just is one of the things that blows me away as much as anything that I've ever, ever, ever heard in any story that I've ever heard of before is, is how this father runs to his son. And I just want to say, I just want to say this. You know what? Children run. Have you noticed it? Mothers run. But how many fathers run? Especially Middle Eastern patriarchs. You know, those who are the landowner, they don't run to places. They stride to places. They saunter to places. They own lots of land. They have everyone's respect. They are smooth. They're not going to run to anybody and say, oh, let me come and do that for you. They're expecting servants to do for them. They're expecting people to notice them. That's what the, the culture of that time is. But we see a father who doesn't stay in the party but leaves the party to beg his older son to come into the party because he loves him and calls him son and says, all that I have is yours. But we also see a, a Middle Eastern father who runs to his rebellious son, the one who rejected him publicly. He runs to him. Why? Because he can't help himself. He loves us so much that if all we do is just show him a little bit of interest, it doesn't have to be full repentance. It could just be like this son who says, you know what? I just don't want to die. 
It could be that your rent is not paid and, and you're wondering how you're going to pay it and you start praying to God. It could be that you are wondering what's going to happen in your marriage or wondering what's going to happen in your family and you cry out to God and, 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 and God doesn't see that as maybe you understanding the fullness of a relationship with Him but your need is something that He runs to Well, you say, well, I've prayed to God before and, and it didn't seem to work out right away. It di I didn't get what God, you know, I prayed for an A and I got a B and all of that but then later on you realize that because you got a B you're no longer proud of getting the A and not only did you pass the exam but you're a little more humble than the rest of your classmates. The reality is, is that God is running to you with gifts to, 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 to show you his love. Sometimes it comes in packages you expect. Sometimes it comes in other packages. But God is a God who runs to us. And I love this story because the, the son didn't repent. Did you notice that? He didn't repent. He didn't come to his senses and go, uh, you go, well, well, sure he repented. He said, you know what? Uh, it says he came to his senses. It says that he said, I've sinned against heaven and against you, against God, you know, against heaven and against you, Dad. But why? What was his motivation? I'm starving. What did he say? Now I understand what I've done to my father. Did he say, now I realize that my father was good and I treated him like trash? Did he say those things? No, there wasn't yet repentance that was at least not maybe in measure, but not in fullness. This young man had not recognized what he had done to his father, what he had done to his, his household, what he had done to the community. He hadn't fully been made aware of, of the depth of his sin and what his sin had cost him, but it also cost his older brother. It also cost his father. He didn't come to an understanding of all those things. And the father didn't wait for him to come to an understanding of all those things. The father just said, this is my opportunity to be in relationship with my son. What's he do? A Middle Eastern patriarch lifts up his robes. And I, I can't imagine a Middle Eastern patriarch running, but I definitely can't imagine a Middle Eastern patriarch showing off his legs in the process. I can't imagine that Middle Eastern patriarch lifting up his, his, uh, his robe and saying, you know what, nothing. I'm not going to trip. I'm not going to fall. Nothing is going to keep me from this son. And then falling on him, like pouncing on him with kisses and embraces, and then restoring him the relationship, communicating uh, uh, fellowship or, or forgiveness to him. It's an amazing thing, a God so loving. And, and yet we might ask, well, where's the lesson for the son? Where's the anger? For the son, and we'll get to that when we talk about you know what what the son what 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 is required of humans. But I just want to read the scripture out of Ezekiel thirty four verse eleven through twelve. It says, "For this is what the sovereign Lord the sovereign Lord says: I myself will search for my sheep and look after them." And isn't that what Jesus is doing right now in communicating this story to you and to me again? Maybe for the first time, who knows? But in communicating, isn't he doing exactly that? Isn't he searching for his sheep, looking after his sheep, doing this out of love, running to us, willing to pay whatever price to experience whatever pain that we might cause him? You know, the interesting thing is, is that when it says that he divided his property among him, that word property is bios in the Greek, B-I-O-S. You know what bios, the word means? Life. 
When that man divided his property, he was giving up his life. Isn't that interesting that Jesus, who is telling this story, is the one who is being sent from the Father to give up his life for us? There's nothing that describes the running love of God to us any more than Jesus coming on this rescue mission to pay for our sins, to give it all up for us. Um, and you can imagine the astonishment of the younger son, even the older son, even the guests that were there at the party. I pray that you're just as astonished. I pray that you're just as amazed. I pray that every time you have communion and your teeth crush that bread that you're putting in the mouth, in your mouth, that you would remember that your sins crush the very body of Jesus. That every time that you pour that, that juice down into your body, you remember that Jesus poured out his blood to you. I pray that there will be an astonishment of the grace of God, that, that, that you would never get old for you, it would never get uh, shallow for you, it would never get mundane, it would never get religious. It would always be relationship. Here we see the father taking a robe and putting on his son. You think that costs the father? And what's he doing when he's putting the robe on him? He's covering the sinful son's nakedness. He's covering his shame. He's covering his poverty. He's covering his unworthiness. And every time the father responds to you in your sin, in your physical need, he's covering your poverty. He's covering your shame. He's covering your unworthiness. And when the father put that ring on his finger, the father was canceling out the sinful son's sinful, unworthy identity and restoring to him the, the, the identity of a, of a son of the house, uh, of, of somebody who belonged in that house with the privileges and the authorities and responsibilities of that house. So in that ring, the father was canceling out his sinful son's inferiority, his loneliness, his isolation, his low standing. All of those things is what God was doing when he gave that ring to that son. What cost was there to God to run to you? Was the cost not to not only allow his son to leave the relationship, the intimacy that they had been in for all eternity, the place of heaven, the place of glory, to come down not just to a low position, coming down to the earth that was created by God. That was no big thing. God did that in the garden. He came to this earth. He loved being with people. That wasn't the issue. It was coming to a world that had rebelled against him and was now covered by sin and the decay of sin, the diseases, the disobedience, all of those things to come down into that environment. This is what it costs God, what, 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 what price there had to be to pay, to run to you, is not just to, to die on the cross, but even what it took to get here to die on the cross, to come down into human form, to then wash the feet of the disciples. Can you imagine the one who created the people washing off the dirt that had, that had come upon those people? 
Can you imagine that Jesus did that for disciples knowing that they would that night abandon him? That they would that night betray him? That, that one of them that night would hand him over to his enemies and yet he still washed their feet? Can you imagine that kind of running to us? That kind of grace for us? What did it cost God to be in relationship with you? He had to come down from heaven to this earth. He had to be made into this low place. He had to become a part of this low place. And then he had to give himself to the worst of this low place. And, and when, he, when he went to the cross, he was not just experiencing physical pain, but, but social shame. I mean, imagine all of the price that Jesus had to pay. Imagine what the Father had to pay. I remember when I went up for, I, I didn't plan on telling this, but I think I, I'll just take a minute just to do this. I went up at a, uh, what's the guy's name that uh, he has a healing ministry and he was here a couple of times with the conferences. Um, uh, we do the, the series. Randy Clark. Randy Clark says, if you're just hungry for, you know, just a release of more of God's anointing in your life, come and just be prayed for. And I just ran, you know, okay. I'm going to be praying. I always, every opportunity. Okay, God, I just want everything you have for me. And he put his hand on me and the most bizarre thing that I could ever expect happened to me. I didn't like jump up and down. I, I fell to the ground in agony. I, I felt physical pain, emotional pain. At some point, I felt like my chest pinned me to the ground. I was writhing. I was, you know, kind of rolling and like groaning. It was disgusting. It was you know, tears and snot and all the kind of stuff, you know, just, it was just like horrible stuff. But God just started pouring into me a revelation of the cross like nothing that I had ever experienced before. And I couldn't help but just start crying out, Jesus, I know theologically why you went to the cross, but now experiencing the kind of emotional pain, I know, by the way, I'm not in any way saying that he downloaded to me the degree of physical pain that he went through. I felt the, the smallest measure of that. And yet I knew at that moment that I was experiencing the smallest measure of it, and he experienced the unlimited measure of it. And at that point, I just started crying out, Jesus, why? Why? Why did you go to the cross? And then I, I, I started just crying out, Father, why? And I didn't feel like I was, I was in any way, you know, putting the Father on the hot seat or, or, or you know, putting him on trial I needed to get in touch with it, not just theologically, but emotionally. I needed to understand the depths of his, uh, of his reason for why he would, he would allow his son to go through that and why the son would allow himself to go through that when he knew that he could call for angels and they would deliver him from the cross. And I just kept crying out, why, 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 Jesus? Why did you go through this? Why, Father, did you allow him to, why? How could you stand by when he went through this? And I felt the, the pain of the cross to that measure enough to cry out like that. And then a scripture that I've known for decades now came to me in a brand new way. And it's a scripture in Hebrews 12 that says, who, the one uh, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And the answer came to me not just intellectually and not even in a surface way emotionally, but deep down in my being I knew it, that Jesus loves joy and what brings him the most joy is to be in harmonious relationship with himself father son and holy spirit but also with those that he's created in his own image nothing gives him any greater joy other than being in relationship 
among the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit than to have those who are created in His own image that He loves enough to give them everything that heaven has to offer just to be in relationship with Him. And when they come into relationship with Him, there's nothing that brings them joy. That's the theme of Luke 15. That's the theme of the prodigal son story that we call the prodigal father story. That's the theme of the story that came before the woman who looked for her lost coin and, and the shepherd who looked to look for his lost sheep. At the end of each of those succession of stories that make up one thematic story, there's a celebration in heaven. It says that heaven rejoices over one sinner that returns to God. And it's not just because God hates sin. It's because God loves people, sinners though they are. He loves them and desires to be in relationship with them and is willing to spend all that heaven can afford. What cost was there to God? On the cross we see that Jesus was stripped of his royal robe. He was stripped of the royal finger, finger, uh, ring on his finger. He was taken from his place of heaven. He was taken from his, uh, his place of honor. All of those things was what it cost the Father and the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit to be in relationship with you. You talk about loving. You talk about having compassion. You talk about uh, running to you. You talk about what it costs God, what God requires of himself to be in relationship with you. It, it re God requires everything. He requires everything of himself to be in relationship with you. And so then what does it require? What does God require of you to be in relationship with him? I should be looking at my own numbers because I have them here. I keep flipping pages, but I'm looking for page nine. Can you help me find page nine? There it is, right there. What does God require of humans? You're preaching a lot recently, Wanda? Are you preaching a lot? Yeah? You ever lose your place like that in your notes? Never, right? Never. It's just me. <laughs> I said it before. What God requires of himself is to say yes to you. I want to be in relationship with you and I'll do everything it takes to be in relationship with you. So what does it require of you to be in relationship with God? What does God require of you? And it's simply to say yes to God's yes. John chapter 1 verse 12 it says anyone, it's, at first it says people who Jesus came to who were his own people rejected him. Can you imagine that? They were his own people by distance and by nearness. They were his own people, just like all people are his people because God created them, but they were also his people because God, they were the Jewish people. They were the ones that God gave Moses to, that God gave David, that God gave you know, all of the covenant and the, and the law and all of those things. And yet many of them rejected him. But then after it says that those that he came to or his own rejected him, it says, but to as many as received him, to as many as believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. First John chapter 3, verse 1 says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. It didn't work out for you to be born the first time. Your life is a mess. Your life is filled with sin and alienation from God. Guess what? I've got another opportunity for you to be born again. This not, not just to be born from a sinful earth, but to be born from heaven. The purity of heaven. The love of heaven. The, the, the reaching down of heaven. 
this beautiful thing that I shared with you about the, that brother David Platt who's now pastoring uh, just over here at, at uh, McLean Bible Church and I'm so excited because he's one of my favorite preachers and I, I'm looking forward to going to some of the services on Friday night over there and hearing him because I just found out he was there. But David Platt was in Indonesia and he was there with a, 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 a Buddhist and he was there with an imam and they all agreed, you know, they all were saying we're all the same, you know, people going up the mountaintop to God. We're just on different sides of the mountain. And David Platt said, hey, I want to ask you a question. What if God were to come down to the mountain to where we are? And they said, that would be wonderful. They said, well, let me introduce you to Jesus. No one in any of those two religions or any other religion or any other human philosophy has ever revealed God like this story alone. And there's myriads of, there's tons of other stories, tons of other teachings that Jesus gave, tons of other demonstrations. The cross and the empty tomb is the greatest of all demonstrations. But this one teaching alone, there's nothing like it in all of human history, in all of literature, in all of storytelling. Nothing reveals God like this does as a God who says yes to us. And the only thing that he expects of us is to say yes to his yes. And you say, well, I thought it was repentance. And I want to deal with this thing of repentance. Because we know that repentance comes before salvation. Before Jesus was introduced, he sent John the Baptist to preach a message of repentance. But I want you to see the most beautiful picture of repentance anywhere in the Bible, in my opinion. And it's the repentance of the Son. I already mentioned that the son didn't fully repent when he was there in the pig pen. He just didn't want to starve. And he knew that his father was his only option. And so he came up with a, a script, a speech that he was going to give. Oh, I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. Please get, take me back. I'm going to work for you. I'll just make me like one of your hired servants. Make me an apprentice in your house and I'll pay you back and all those things. What does Jesus do? He doesn't even let him finish the speech. He interrupts him. You know, there's an amazing uh, experience that this man um, was supposed to get when he got back. It's, it's the ceremony of Kazaza. Have you ever heard of that, the ceremony of Kazaza? I just want to make sure that you understand what this is. Kazaza, if a young man in Israel did one of these two things, married an, an immoral woman or lost the family fortune outside of the community of Israel to the Gentiles. He was going to experience the Kazaza ceremony. I'll tell you what that is in a moment. But notice this. The son did both of those things. Okay? He was a double, like, he expected double condemnation. Kazaza was this. When, 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 if they ever had the nerve to return the community would come together with a large earthenware, a water container. But instead of filling it with water, they'd fill it with burned nuts and burnt corn. And they would drag the son to the central square, right out in public, just like what he did to his father. And they would break this pot filled with this dust, this burned dust instead of fresh water. And they, and they would break it to make the pot useless but also show, to show the uselessness of the purpose, the true purpose of the pot. And as they did that, they would declare, this person is now cut off from this village. After that, no one would assist them with food, water, employment, shelter. He is efficiently, effectively exiled. He is banished from the community at that point. There's no hope for him in his father's house or in any of the neighbor's houses. 
He literally has to leave and go and beg somewhere else and hope that somebody, that didn't work out in the far off land, remember. In other words, there would be no hope for him at this point. That's what by right he should have received when he went back to his father. But the father would have none of it. As soon as the son began to, 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 to go through his speech and say, I'll be a hired servant, I'll work for you so that you can accept me maybe someday. Do you remember the story of the Buddhist prodigal son? That, that, that's more the system of this world. That's not the story of Jesus. Do you remember that that prodigal son who came back to his father had to work for the rest of his life for the father without having any relationship whatsoever for, with his father. Look at the contrast of this prodigal son story that Jesus told. He interrupts him. Why doesn't he interrupt him? Because he knows Kazaza is coming. The ceremony is going to kick out his son. He will not have it. His love is too great for his son. He interrupts not only his son, but he interrupts the ceremony. And he immediately declares, Kazaza has been suspended. I am going to restore my son to his place, not his rightful place, because he has spurned that right, but the, the place of my grace. I am going to, to provide that to him again. It's like in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. It says that we are saved by faith. We are saved by grace through faith. This not of ourselves, not of, both, not of works so that no one can boast, but it is the gift of God. We are saved by grace through faith. Faith is simply saying yes to God's yes. I'm going to place my trust in God's yes for me by saying yes to the love of God. And you know where the, the, where the, where the repentance of the son was culminated? You know where it came into its fullness? Not until he was safely in the arms of his father. Before then, it was going to be a contract they would make. I'll work for you, and I'll only earn my way. And the father said, you have no idea how much I love you. I cannot be in that kind of relationship with you. You are my son. He's saying it to you. You are my daughter, created in my image. You're worth the blood of Jesus. Everything in heaven. That's what he's saying to you, gentlemen. You're my son. All of that. He's, he's communicating that to you and he's simply saying to you, if you know just one thing that you are better off with me than you are with this world, then watch how I wrap my arms around you. And when I wrap my arms around you and you truly get in touch with my grace, you truly get in touch that this is not something that you earn. This is not something that even your repentance, even your contrition does not earn you. Sometimes we think that if we say sorry enough, God's going to love us enough. If we pay back God, that was not the way that this father responded to his son. He demanded no payback. He didn't even demand full repentance from him. He just knew that if the son would say yes to his love, that in that place, the son would truly repent. Repentance is turning away from being without God and turning to being with God. I don't believe that repentance is in any way possible until God wraps in fullness, until God wraps his arms around us. Notice that in the two first stories, there's somebody that goes looking. There's somebody that looks for the coin. There's somebody who goes and looks for the sheep. In this one, there's no one that goes looking. Why? Because this son was made in the image of God. This son had a choice to make. 
This son had to be honored as being given that choice by God. God had to allow him to say no. But also God had to allow him, if it was possible, to learn from his mistakes and to turn back in the direction of God. God did all of that. But in Romans chapter 11, verse 32, it gives us this beautiful insight. It says that God gave us all over to disobedience. In other words, God permitted all of us to become sinners. Why? So that he might have mercy on us all. Well, why would God want to have mercy on us all? Because if we thought that we deserved the love of God, we wouldn't know the depths of the love of God. If we thought that we were good enough for the love of God, that we had earned the love of God, that we had repented enough, that we had um, you know, done enough right things, if we had worked hard enough for God, we wouldn't know the depths of His love. And God has so much love for us that He allows us to go on our way so that when we come back, He can wrap us in His arms and say, you know what, it's as if it doesn't matter. It, it's not that it doesn't matter. Remember how much he paid for that sin. That rebellion of that son. It does matter. If the cross doesn't tell us that sin is horrible, that sin matters, nothing else will. The cross tells us that sin is bad. But the reality is the cross also tells us that God's not going to count our sins against us. That there's no sin that would keep us from his love. This is why in Romans 8 it says, Nothing shall separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Shall trouble or persecution or nakedness or famine or sword or peril or any of those things. No, nothing shall separate you from the love of God. In all these things you are more than conquerors through God who loves you. You see, they even deal, deal with negative things like suffering. Sometimes when God seems to have abandoned us, allows us to go through suffering, when he allows us to go through pain, we wonder if God really loves us. But because we know the grace of God already that ran to us at the cross, that God has given us so much, that has settled it. Our questions are only temporary. Our feeling of lack is only temporary. You might not have everything now, but you know you will have everything. You might not have every answer now, but you know you'll have every answer. How do you know that? Because if God did not spare his own son for you, but freely gave him up for you and all the rest of us, how will he not along with him also freely give you all things? Are you ready to say yes to the love of God? Are you ready to say yes to him? Are you ready to trust him with your marriage? Are you ready to trust him with your singleness? Are you ready to trust him with your friendships? Are you ready to trust him with your lack of friendships? Are you ready to trust him with your immigration status, with your, with your, with your studies, with your work, with your housing? Are you ready to trust him with all of those things? Can you trust him? Obviously, you can trust him if we're talking about God, a father like this. All we have to do is say yes to him. And the more that we say yes to him, the more we'll say yes to him the more that we realize how much God loves us and wraps us in his love and, and says, you know what, it's not about work, it's not even about reformation, it's not about all those things, learning your lesson, it's all those things. Can I just finish with one more thing? Just one more thing, it'll only take a minute. What's the motivation? Notice I didn't wait for an answer. I, I just gave myself an, uh, permission. I said yes to me, right? What's the motivation for this? Sometimes some people are so afraid to just trust in the unconditional love of God. The unmerited favor of God. That's what grace is. Undeserved favor. It's God saying I like you even when you're not likable. God saying I love you even when you're not lovable. And some people are like, no, 
I like the religious system. I like the old system better. I like the system that seemed to make more sense to me and the rest of the people in the world. If you do right, you get blessed. If you do wrong, you get cursed. If you're not doing right, your prayers won't be heard. If you're not doing right, you won't go to heaven. I want to go with that system. It's the system of religion, but it's not the system of relationship with God as revealed by Jesus. It's not that. It's not that. So why would we go back to a system that has a dead-end street that only leads to more fear? Because the more that you work to earn God's favor, the more you'll need to find out that you'll have to work some more in other areas and other areas, and you find out that you're just perpetually lost, that you're perpetually failing, that, that, and it'll lead to more fear and more fear and more fear. And so you'll just think, you know what? I've got I've to be motivated by the law. I've got to be motivated by rules and regulations, and that's what's going to be my answer, and that seems to make sense to me. But this unconditional love of God where I just kind of free fall into the love of God, that seems too kind of ambiguous and ethereal and, and kind of twilight zone-ish where we're out there and like, what's going to happen now? But I'm telling you what, the older brother, the younger brother taught us that a sinful, rebellious life is a dead-end street. The older brother taught us that living a life by the rules is a dead-end street. Because eventually, you'll resent yourself, you'll resent God, and you'll resent everyone around you. Why will you resent everyone around you? Because you'll compare yourself to others, and sometimes you'll think God should accept you, and other times you think God shouldn't accept you. And you start comparing the wealth that they have and the godliness that they have and the spiritual gifts that they have and you just start to kind of give up. I'm just going to encourage you. Just let go of that religious spirit. Of that thing, if I just fast enough, he'll love me. If I just, you know, but then you go, well, what will motivate me? Hey, if you're not motivated by a God who says, I love you whether you're up or down. And I love you enough to pick you up when you're down and lift you back up. If you're not uh, uh, motivated by that kind of love that God says, I've got you in your sin, but I can also make you a saint both in name and in practice. If you're, if you're not motivated by that kind of love, a God who says, I'll clothe you with my righteousness. I'll give you the ring of my authority. I'll give you the scriptures that will, that will light you up. You know what? Uh, in, in 1 Peter, I think it's chapter 2 or, or 2 Peter chapter 1, one of those two, I forget what it is. It says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of the Lord Jesus. The reality is the, the greatest thing that can, that can motivate you is to know Jesus on the cross and rising from the dead. Everything in this story is Jesus. Can you say amen? amen? One last thing to kind of bring that home if I could. You know that I've kind of been studying some different, you know, resources. I love that book, The Heart of Man on Netflix. Watch that movie if you haven't watched it yet. I've watched it three times, I think now, maybe more. And it just blows me away, that movie. Heart of Man, Netflix. The Prodigal's Return, Henry Nowen, The Prodigal God, um, Timothy Keller. Uh, online teaching by Kenneth Bailey. I gave you that bibliography in, in your notes before. But I just, I just want to give this story to kind of make sure that that last point that's so important kind of, kind of settles somewhere in, in, your, in your understanding and in your memory. When this kind of message was being taught at, 
at Timothy Keller's church called Redeemer Church in Manhattan, New York City. Um, this woman who had grown up in a church that all her life it was, if you do right, you get blessed. If not, it's, you know. And she just started hearing about the free, unconditional grace of God poured out because of his love and, and the mercy of God, the forgiveness, the restoration, the God blessing us even though we don't deserve it, all of those things. She said, it's, now that I'm hearing this, this is a scary message. She goes, don't get me wrong, it's a good scary, but it's really scary. He was intrigued and asked her, why is it scary to you? Because she said, if God made it about works and my repentance and my contrition and all of my efforts, then when I did that, God would owe me something. But God didn't make it about my efforts. God made it about his efforts. God didn't make it about me paying the price for my sin. It made him about him paying the ultimate price for my sin. He said, you know what that tells me now? I now owe him everything. He can now ask me for anything. That's why scripture says that we were bought with a price and we are not our own. That means we don't live our lives on our own. We don't make decisions on our own. Yes, we make decisions like, hey, it's morning. I'm going to respond to morning. That's just a natural thing. You don't have to, you, you probably don't have to pray about what socks to wear and those kind of things. You might one day, who knows? But just generally speaking, you don't have to make, you know. I'm just saying that there are decisions in life, where I go to work, who I marry, where all those things, you don't make them on your own. Why? Because your whole motivation now is everything that Jesus has done for me. It's true in giving. When Jesus taught it, when, when Scripture taught in 2 Corinthians 9 about giving, it didn't say give because people need you to give. It didn't say even give because you're, you're going to be blessed, although that's a part of it too. It says give because you've been given to. The one who was rich became poor for your sake to make you rich. It goes back to the gospel. Same thing with marriage. You might wonder, how do I motivate it to, to live life better in marriage? Here's what it tells husbands. And by the way, husbands who are in a culture who owned their wives for contractual reasons, money, society, all that kind of stuff. And in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit says to Paul, tell husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave his life for them. Do you see everything, your money, your marriage, your school, everything that, that, that you could do right. The motivation that you should receive, that you should be motivated by, compelled by, is not to get the best grades or to look the best in marriage or to have people give you a good reputation. It's the gospel. It's what Jesus has done for you. The reason why you love your enemies is because Jesus loved you when you were an enemy. The reason why you love people who ignore you is because Jesus loved people when, that ignore him. The reason why you love your wife is not because your wife loves you. You love your wife because um, Jesus loves you. And then when you love her, she loves you. Amen? And the reality is, is that when you, when you look at money, you don't give money because you're pressured to or because, you know, those poor kids and, the, and the, all that stuff. You give because you've been given to. It always goes back to the gospel and it always goes back to the cross. If you want to be motivated, get to the cross. Let him lay you out. 
let them let them knock you on the ground where you're writhing in pain. I'm, I'm being facetious a little bit, but let them let them get you to the place where you understand His love for you, and you'll have everything that you need physically, spiritually, relationally, um, financially, everything that you need. Can you say Amen? Yeah. All right. Okay, Lord. Um, first of all, I want to thank you for the grace of the listeners. Um, I had a lot I wanted to get out this morning, and people have been so gracious to me. But I know that people are not only giving themselves and being here and listening, but that they're also receiving, myself included. We're giving to you, but our time and all of that, but it's nothing compared to what you're giving to us and what you have given to us. I pray, Jesus, that you would bring us to that place that we would understand that the way we are made holy is by knowing the love of the only Holy One. That's how we're being made holy. And so I pray, Jesus, that we would um, just be clay on your potter's wheel. That we would allow you just to shape us and make us, hold us, embrace us. I pray that we would be the, the younger son that just falls in your arms and there in your arms that you would transform us from slave, servant, into son, into daughter. I, I just pray that we would, at that point, walk with our head high again, that we would take on your robe and your ring and know that we belong to you and if we belong to you, who, who can touch us? If God is for us, who can be against us? I pray that we would live this way when we're on the job, that we would remember the cross, we would met, remember the deep, deep love of God. I pray that we would not only have communion on Sundays, but even during the week as, as individuals, as families, that we would break bread and, 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 and drink the wine together to say, we're going we're gonna to recognize what Jesus has done for us. We're never going to forget. We're going to allow it to dawn on us over and over. We're going we're gonna to drink it. We're going to eat it. We're going to grow in it. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would um, just bring us to that place of your love where we would allow you uh, to do what you want to do um, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.